4 p.m., stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Today we have here my ride and die partner in crime, <laughs> my ups and downs, the girl who been rolling with me for quite some time, Miss <laughs> Maida Clark McDonald or Miss Maida McDonald. Maida McDonald. Welcome Clark. to Count Time. Welcome, 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 my brothers and my sisters. Well, I've been waiting for quite some time to get this interview. Now, now she and I work closely together, but it's been hard to get an interview with her. She's so big, so important. I can't get an interview you people out there, but guess what? I got her here today, got on lockdown. If you want to hear a lot of great information, a lot of history, well, you're going to hear from this young lady here. She got a long story and a great story to tell. So we're going to get started with Ms. Maida McDonough here. I don't even know where to start at. I don't even me. I don't what, even know where, where to start at. High, low, in the middle, the back. Where are we gonna get started at, Miss Baby? Well, I'll, maybe what I should do is just say who I am and uh where I hail from, what I do. Uh my name is Maida McDonald. Maida Yvonne McDonald is my birth name. Maida who? Yvonne. Y V O N N E. I have my first name from my paternal grandmother, Maida Porter Edwards, and my middle name, Yvonne, comes from my godmother, Yvonne Jeffron. So my parents named my birth name Maida Yvonne McDonald. Now, where the Clark comes in, in 75, I married Wayne Clark. So that's how I have Clark on my name. However, when I do my public relations work and other writing endeavors and things like that, I go by Maida McDonald. So I hail from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, born and raised uh, right there at Baton Rouge General Hospital. December 4th, 1953 is my birthday. I just Ooh. made my birthday on December 4th. Oh, congratulations. Another great birthday. So you made, you made 45? I made 22. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'll put you to 40. You ain't going to even take that I one. Ain't. You can add some years on if you want to. But, yeah, born and raised here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, grew up for 13 years uh, in Valley Park, which is out located off on Corporate Boulevard. Uh, at that particular time, raised in Valley Park, 4416 Well Street. Oh. We lived there. At that particular time, there was nothing, as you see, that area, College Drive, being there. There was no freeway. There was no Albertsons. Well, College Drive, was it was there, but it was just a dirt road? It was a street, but it's not a four-lane street like it is now. And plus, at that time, was College Drive... Out of town? Was it part of the city limits? It was part of the city limits, okay. but all of the growth and the development that is out there now, that was nothing. It was nothing but land. They did not even have the freeway. The freeway that starts at Acadian and on through college, on through, well, there's no freeway, period, yeah, right. when I was coming up. We had to travel 
ground roads. Uh, and you had, you had Valley Park Elementary? Uh, there was Valley Park Elementary that was right there where Albertsons is located. Oh, where Albertsons is? Yeah, that's, that was Valley Park Elementary. That was a school where, where, where Albertsons is now? That was a school, Valley Park Elementary. Uh, you had residents that were on that side of that area, but I'm on, we, my family, we were on the north side. And that was predominant African-American? All African-American. From, from one side of One side, the whole, the whole area was nothing but African-Americans. What displaced those individuals and families that lived in the area where the freeway is is because they bought the freeway through that area. So starting like maybe from Acadian all the way past College Drive, that was nothing but family homes. Those were residences in that area. But when they decided to bring the freeway, then that uprooted those families and moved them to other parts wherever they decided that they wanted to move. There is an overpass from um, mm, Valley Street or either Baywell Street that crosses over the freeway that takes you to the other side over the freeway. None of that was there. That was okay. nothing but land. So, so was that, that was not even a street going in that dark, going east no. and west? That was, it was not even a street that, going It was not even a street. So, I, I attended Southern University Laboratory School. So whenever we had to travel to Southern High from Valley Park, we had to go by way of Glenmore, Hundred Oaks to Acadian, and then take Acadian up to Scenic, and then Scenic up to Southern. We had to take ground roads. There was no freeway. There was nothing. But, you know, I guess the interesting thing is that so you remember the freeway not even being there? That was no freeway when I was coming or, or, up. Or in, it was now called Interstate 10. It was nothing there. It was so, nothing but land. So you can just walk basically. We could across. walk. We could walk wherever we needed to go. But the, all of those businesses and gas stations and restaurants and all of that, hotels, none of that was there. Were there any shopping areas for you all at that time? There was, I think, a shopping center right where the school was located but other than that it's it was nothing that had developed during what, that time what kind of neighborhood was valley park back then valley park was a was a family oriented neighborhood families had a connection which made a difference in how maybe families are today mothers raised their children fathers raised their children children were children we knew each other, we played together, we prayed together, we did things together. Um, it was a quiet neighborhood. We had no robbing, no shooting, no stealing. We could play until like, I don't know about you or anybody else that's listening, we had to play or we could play until the street lights would come on. Right there, uh, where we lived, we lived right on the corner of Wells and Naren. At that particular time, that side street was not even a paved street. It was a dirt road. Eventually, they came and they paved that street. So the Conrads, the Colemans, the Clarks, the Mathers, the Carters, 
the Duns. Uh, there were just families that we all played together. Now, where there is now the Old Valley Park Alternative School, that used to be a playground. And at that playground, they had a big building where we could go, we could play. You could go inside. They had all kind of different games you could play on, and they had the trampoline outside. But then at night, they had baseball games. So it was like a recreation it center? It was a recreation center. It was a brick recreation okay. center. It was a playground where that school is, which is the Old Valley Park Alternative School. I'm not sure of the name of it now. We would play baseball games at night. It was a baseball field. And we would have teams to come like from South Baton Rouge, Eaton Park. We played against each other, boys and girls. We played against each other. And then when the games were over, we would walk home. We didn't have to, our parents didn't have to worry about us being abducted. They didn't have to worry about us being raped. They didn't have to worry about any uh, killing, robbing, and stealing. It was a safe neighborhood. The pictures lived out there. Freddie Pitcher and uh, Larry Pitcher, yeah, his judge, family, judge Pitcher. Judge Pitcher. Judge. Yeah, his family, they lived on the south side of Valley Park. Our family was like on the north side. Now, now the Orange Grocery, well, that's the, was that there then? Orange Grocery was there. Orange Grocery was there. Um, when we would go and play on the playground, we could walk from the playground and there was a trail path that we could walk in between homes and we could come up on the backside of Orange Grocery. Miss Orange was in there selling all of what she had in the store. At that time, we would go in there and we, we'd get the long boys. Remember the coconut long boys? Or the candy. The candy, okay. yeah. And then we would get uh, all kind of cookies and whatever it is we wanted. They, they wasn't selling food at the time? No, they did not have food. Okay. That that building is totally different from where it was during the so, years. Because that's why they got that's why they call it Orange Grocery. Orange Grocery. Because it was a market. Like it, a it, market. It's a market now, and I understand that they serve breakfast and they serve food. Right. And uh, yeah. I think the daughter or somebody else in the family now runs that store. Right. But at that time, the mother and the father had the store to the front. I think which was off of either Baywell or Bayless. I can't think of the name of the street. But you walked in there, you were orderly, you didn't get it, you didn't walk in there with no humbug. Miss Owens did not have to tell John Boy to pull his pants <laughs> off. Okay. Homegirl to don't be talking loud. She had order and these were people, these were families that they were able to uh let us know if we were doing something that was not to be in the right order, then we were corrected. And nobody didn't get flipped at the mouth and want to start talking back to an adult because we were all talked to and trained that we had to respect our elders. Well, that's the time when the, when the village was, was in full effect. The village was in full effect because the African-American proverb says it takes a whole village, not a village, but it takes a whole village. So Valley Park, was a whole village. We had churches in that community uh, that were uh, 
up and going. Uh, I remember the Clark family. They lived about mm, four doors behind where my family's property was. But on that narrow street side, which was a street that had ditches and it was a dirt road, uh, Reverend Clark had a, wasn't full gospel, he had a spirit church. And when he started his church service, you could hear the tambourines, you could hear the people, the choir singing, you had church. You didn't have to be in the church, you could sit in your front yard or your backyard with your windows open and hear the word and hear the church. But again, like I said, Valley Park was uh, a very well-rounded church. The Bill family, I can call him out, Winston DeQueer, De Attorney Winston DeQueer, oh, his family, okay, yeah, his, his, his family home is still there. Uh, so we didn't have to worry about but now, now, did, now, yet, now the Owens is no longer, it's a still, a, a still a grocery store to a degree, mm. but it's mainly food. Now, and the food is excellent, so I would def, definitely highly recommend many to go out there for for lunch. Right. For the, we have one some of the best lunches out there, mm -hmm. uh, and the people are wonderful. They're, just, they're good people out there. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, so you started out in Valley Park. Well, now, actually, when we lived in New Orleans for a while because my daddy is from New Orleans, but then my daddy moved here once he completed high school and college and my mother. At that particular time, we lived with my maternal grandparents, uh, Reverend Dr. Carl Theodore Weathers and Betty Bonnerese Weathers. They lived at 2029 Gracie Street, which is right off of Scenic Highway right there when you on 22nd where Jose's cleaners used to be. Okay. You make that right turn and you go at the first stop sign, you cross Scenic, and then right on the right is where the homestead was. We lived there with Mother Betty and Grandpa for years. Now, now which, now who had, in, who in your family had the beauty, uh, what you call that? Beauty culture? Beauty, the beauty college. The beauty Culture School, which was Paul Rose, Paul Rose was the name, Beauty Culture School, first African-American beauty it's culture school, P-O-R-O -O apostrophe S. Okay. That was my paternal grandmother, Maida Porter Edwards. She had the very first beauty culture school in New Orleans at 2214 Drive Street. You the address. <laughs> I do know it. I do know it. I couldn't help but know it because my daddy being from New Orleans and then yeah. times that we would be in New Orleans for holidays or Christmas or summer and Mother Maida had her beauty That's culture you're named school. named after Mother Maida. I'm named after Mother Maida. <laughs> Hallelujah. I ain't changing my name. Yeah, she had the first African-American beauty Do you beauty remember what year school. she started it? In the forties, I think it was. Okay, that, I, for, for maybe maybe the fifties. But it was the only. The, the she was the first African American beauty culture school in New Orleans, or the state of Louisiana. In the state of Louisiana. Your grandmother. Was. My grandmother, Maida Porter Edwards, and I do have pictures uh, of her students. Uh, a lot of the barbers and a lot of the ladies who were training to become cosmetologists, 
I had pictures when you walked into Poros. She had an office over here, and then she had uh, another office to the left. She had an office to the left where she did all her business. All right. Then she had another room over to the right, and my godmother Gabo, Willie Abel Gabo Marcellus, she was in cosmetology. If that was a private setting of a customer that did not need to be in that population, if they were getting a certain treatment on their hair or a certain style on their hair, then that's where Gabo did her little beauty culture. But as you walked into the school itself, it was a huge room to the left, to the right. There were the uh, uh, barbers, the ladies to the left training in cosmetologists. Cosmetology. They were all dressed in white, and they had stockings on with closed-in shoes. The males were over here, barbers, and they were all being trained. And then when you went upstairs, that's where Mother Maida had like the uh, uh, bowls to wash the hair, uh, the dryers, uh, you know. So that's where they it, got all it, that it, training. Is the building still? still there? I don't think that building is there. No. Now, how, how long did she stay in business? She stayed into business until about the mid 80s. And she also had uh, a living quarters upstairs behind the beauty culture school but you had to go kind of like on a side walk area, go up steps and then she had a living area upstairs where uh, her sister and her children, Aunt Mamie and her children stayed upstairs, but also downstairs to the outside left of the building. She had a millinery shop. And in that millinery shop. What is, what is millinery? She sold garments for ladies, undergarments, oh, okay. bras, girdles, slips, things like that. But she also had handbags, which I have a lot of. She had gloves, she had jewelry. And in that store, she had a case that had all of her display of different items that she sold. A big glass case across the front where people could walk in and they could see items that, that, that they could sell. But I do remember, Lyman, that she had a, she had a, um, what is it, wallpaper strip that went across the top part of the room and it spelled out M-A-D-A apostrophe S, which was, her, which was her name. And that was the name of her shop, Maida's Millinery Shop. Okay. So ladies could come and they could get gloves, they could get hats, they could get handbags, they could get undergarments. So, so, so you, you got a family of just full of historians and people mm -hmm. that was doing great things, that did great things. Your dad was all—he was a minister too. My granddaddy. Your granddaddy. My maternal granddaddy. Now, Mother Maida is my daddy's mama, and her husband's name was Edward, uh, Joseph Edwards. He was an engineer, and he worked. Uh, for many, many, many years, and then later he started teaching at one of the local schools uh, in New Orleans. 
my maternal grandparents, my mom's mom and dad, Reverend Dr. Carl Theodore Weathers, that's not W-E-A-T-H-E-R-S, that's W-E-T-H-E-R-S. He was in the ministry uh, for 50 plus years. He also, before he got into the ministry, he was in the military. Uh, he also planted the palm tree on Southern University's campus, which was right in front of Martin L. Harvey's chapel at the back of the campus on the bluff. That was Martin L. Harvey's chapel. That building is still there now, but I understand it's turned into a museum. But there was a palm tree right there in the front that granddaddy planted. He also was one of the first football players, or coach rather, for McKinley High football team. But later, he matriculated on into the ministry. But he and Mother Betty, uh, they owned and operated the first African-American movie house, theater. And what was the name of that? East End Theater. One more time. East in theater. theater, and I have a picture of that right here in my front and, and, room. And where was East in theater? East located? in theater, you know where Acadian Thruway South? No, no. okay, uh, Acadian Thruway. It's north or south. If you're going south, heading towards, like I said, if you're heading towards south, uh, Purple Shield Building is on the right, right about a block off of Bogan Walk, which is in Eaton Park community. That building still stands there. And I have a roll of tickets that the tickets for the people coming to see the movies were like 15 cents. Ooh, them days gone. Days are gone. <laughs> Long gone. You can't get in the bathroom for 15 cents. It costs more than $15 now to get to a Absolutely. Movie. I have a roll of tickets from that. Uh, it was a theater where African-Americans in the community, Eaton Park in particular, could come. But on Saturdays, he opened up the doors and he had talent shows for youth and children. Earl Taylor, who was a very well-known either baritone or tenor singer, he would perform and other youth would perform on Saturdays. But um, he hired a lot of uh, African-American uh, people to work would, the would, ticket booth. Would, would, did you work there, too? I wasn't born. You wasn't born? Okay. I was just a twinkle in the eye. Oh, so, so that, how long, what year was, was that built? I was born in 53, so that was back in the 40s. So he built the theater, mm -hmm. your grandfather mm -hmm. built the theater in the 40s. Mm -hmm. East End Theater. And the building is still there. It's not a theater. Later on, when I moved from Los Angeles back home, I found out that it became a music studio. That building still stands there. And Grandpa, I have actually the original movie projector in my studio that he showed his films, like Stormy Weather, Gone with the Wind, all those old movies were the movies that uh, my mom and her friends and community people could come and uh, watch. But at that time, tickets, I'll show you a ticket maybe later on, but tickets were no longer or no bigger than my pinky. 
and the tickets cost was like 15 cents. Oh, man. You go in there and you get the popcorn, you get the drinks, all that kind of stuff. At that time, Eaton Park, like South Baton Rouge, Valley Park, Scotlandville, were all African-American self-sustaining communities. We didn't have to go out to go go get nothing. Everything you needed was in your own community. Was in your own community. You didn't have to go to the barbershop, nowhere. You didn't have to go get no flowers, nowhere. You didn't have to go to the gas station. You didn't have to go to the beauty shop. You didn't have to go to the upholstery shop. You didn't have to go to a doctor's office. You didn't have to go anywhere in those communities. We had everything. It was self-contained. Self-sustaining. African-Americans, through integration, uh, rather segregation, didn't have to go out of their communities. They had everything, just like South Baton Rouge. South Baton Rouge had everything. Scotlandville had everything. Eden Park had everything. And families had a connection. Schools were schools. Teachers were teachers. And then look like when integration came in, that's when everything just went kapow. Okay, that's what uh, most people say. Before integration, you never had to lock your door. Uh-uh. All of a sudden, after integration, you got to start locking your you doors. Got to start locking your doors. Can't figure that one out. Had to start locking your doors. And then what ended up happening was a lot of our uh, businesses, uh, gas stations, restaurants, cleaners, whatever we needed. We didn't have to go nowhere. We had everything in that little circle. Didn't have to move out, didn't have to go anywhere. We had like Ethel's in Scotlandville. Uh, we had uh, Tidbit in South Baton Rouge. What was Tidbit? Tidbit was a restaurant right there on Terra Street where Carver Branch Library is. It used to be Reddy Street School. Right. It's the Carver Branch Library right across the street from there. The Pusho family, Lester Pusho and his mom and daddy, Paul, Paulette and Carrie and the baby boy, they had their home right there and right across the street was Tibet. Boy, you could go up in there. You can get a chitlin plate. A chitlin plate back chitlin then? Chitlin plate. Oh, yes, indeed. They used to put it on the plate and put it in a brown bag. Baby, by the time you got home, you dug into them chitlins. And then also we had Bernard's which was on North Boulevard. The fried chicken place. No. Well, it was fried chicken, but it's right across the street from the Temple Roof. So when they took that overpass, if you take North Boulevard and you're going down downtown, you got the Temple Roof, you could see it, but that overpass took out Bernard's, took out Mr. Buffington's gas station, took out Tabby's Blues House, there were African-American businesses all up and down that area. But Bernard's, Bernard's had the best food. They had the restaurant to the front. They had a little seating area. And I think they had a lounge to the back. But one thing I can remember, if mommy said, oh, we're going to Bernard's, we would get an oyster loaf. It'd be like long. <laughs> and he would wrap it in this white paper. And we would keep the windows up on the way home because we didn't want the ocean boy to get cold. cold. <laughs> Y'all going to sweat it. Yeah, we sweat, we sweat it out. We sweat it out. But when they put that overpass on North Boulevard, that took out all of those businesses. The temple roof still sits there. 
-hmm. You could see if you're going across yeah, that because, overpass. Because that, that's the Masonic building, so they ain't going yeah. mess with that one. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't mess with that, but a but, lot of us fought for them coming in our community and taking away businesses that had been at Tabby, Tabby Blue's house. You could go there and sit right there, five, ten minutes here from my home. I wasn't living here then, but that's where African Americans could go. And you had other businesses that were yeah, on I, that I street. Yeah, I heard they call that, that street the Strip. Yeah. Because they said everything was jumping and popping over Everything there. was jumping and popping. And Mr. Buffington uh, gas station was right there on that corner across the street from the Masonic Temple Lodge because you also had a theater there, you know. At the Temple Theater. And you had the Temple Theater, you had the Ann Theater. Uh, Fred Williams later on came up with another theater. Then you had Mr. Cook that had Cook's Theater in uh, Scotlandville, right there where Horatio Thompson had his gas station. Right. He had his gas station, I think the first one over on Government Street, which is now a car wash. But then he had a gas station right there on the corner in Scotlandville. That building, the Cook's Theater building, still is sitting there. So you had a theater in Scotlandville. So, but let's go back to North Boulevard. Okay. Because that overpass came quite a few years after. It came maybe about the, 10 years ago. After the black Muslims showed up down on North Boulevard. Mm -hmm. You you do you remember that day? You I think sure it? do. Uh, what you what do you remember about it? I remember that day that it was during a time when it was a lot of crossing over from segregation to integration. I can't remember specifically why the Muslims were out there, but they I don't think they caused no havoc, no confrontation, no altercation. I can't remember why, but I just remember that they had lined across the front of North Boulevard, of North Boulevard, in front of the Temple Theater, and blocked the road, and blocked the road, or whatever came up, and then what? Here come them folks, want to start ask, acting like folks getting ready to start a big ruckus. Okay, but they first said that a news reporter, Bob Johnson, mm -hmm. was was hurt or injured. Okay, uh, because of. They had, uh, they invited, the Muslims, most of them, they was not even from here. From, mm. from what we They're here. probably from Chicago. Yeah, some of Chicago, Philadelphia. Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they came from different places. So nobody knew really why they was here. But the comments they, they said the Muslim made to the community was that we come to give you your city back. Mm -hmm. And they said, we come here to die for you. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's uh, some different accounts I got of some other people. Yeah, And yeah. these guys, and they told everybody, don't bring any weapons, do not uh, bring any guns, mm -hmm. uh, because we don't have any, so we just want to go out there. We want to let you know that, you know, this is your city, and you need to you need to own it and, and, and claim it. Right. But uh, on that day, when all so-called hell broke loose, mm -hmm. and uh, so... But you were not there that day. I was not there, but I, I remember it vividly. I remember all of the uh, news reports and the papers and the media. I remember that very, very well. So, so you, you was, so you remember another thing that happened in nineteen. This happened in January with the with the Muslims. Mm -hmm. So also something in, in November of that same year, nineteen seventy two, 
You remember something else? You was a part of something else that happened. I was a part of the uh, unnecessary shooting of two students at Southern University, Leonard Brown and Denver Smith. I was a sophomore. I was in the academic building, which is on the bluff in the back of the campus, uh, right there where all the ROTC buildings were. Then it was a three-story building, big gray building, academic building. My social work classes, my American history classes were there. Next to that was the administration building. Next to that was Martin L. Harvey. The only building that's standing there now is Martin L. Harvey's uh, chapel, which is now a uh, museum. And I was in my class, social work class, that day I was seated by a window. And they would, I don't remember them having air conditioning, but the windows were up. I was part of the protest for that time. If they said, meet us in the gym, the 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 leaders Fred Ricky and uh what's her name Sakara yeah uh I can't think of her 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 her, her, her Charlene person. Charlene yeah yeah um I I was I was at Southern during that time but anyway in particular uh the students came and they were coming to the administration building and our instructor said okay we're gonna uh, ask all you all to leave the building. We did that. We left the building. We didn't know what was going on. But that entire semester, we had been meeting. We had been protesting. And what do you remember what y'all was meeting about? A lot of the meetings were to uh, get the administration to make some changes on academic structure. Uh, a lot of things were not, I guess, where some of those advocates felt that it should have been. Okay. Uh, we could be sitting in our biology class or our business class and, you know, somebody come out on a megaphone, we're meeting in the men's gym. At that time, it was no mini dome. The men's gym, right there, when you come down Harding Boulevard, you get to that first red light, you turn right on campus. That's Seymour Gym now, Clifton Seymour Gym. That's where we would conjugate. That's where we would meet. Yeah, okay, that's where most of our meetings took That's place. where most of the meetings were held because that's where we had the basketball games. There was no mini-dome. Mini-dome came back in the 80s or maybe the 90s. I, I, I graduated. But long story short, we all left the building. I was standing right there where that street, where the Law Street is, I mean Law Center is, and the library. I was right there on that corner, right there by the canal. So I, I was right there on front line. I could see everything. I can remember seeing uh, the students that I think were only coming to talk to the administration. Wasn't no altercation, wasn't no confrontation. Throughout the whole protest, wasn't no violent, nothing going on. And from what I understand, they were coming to talk to the uh, administration being the president, because from what I understand, the night before, Charlene and Fred and Ricky, and I don't know who else, I don't know what happened. I think they were arrested. I think they were coming to try to find out what was going on. There was nothing going on. I, we were just all standing up there, just looking, observing. Next thing we know, here all these artillery trucks roll on that street coming down where Mayberry Dining Hall is now located. I still to this day don't understand what happened. Nobody was doing nothing. Nobody was 
fighting. And, it was nothing. And it's like the, the, the army showed up, the military showed up. I'm telling you, you would have thought that they were going to be at non-war somewhere. And there was nothing that was going on. The entire time we protested, and I was a witness to that day, and I was a supporter while I was in school that day. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm a 1953 baby. So I came up with Stokely Carmichael. I came up with H. Rap Brown. I came up with Angela Davis. I ain't going to tell you that I wasn't militant in my own little way, but I wasn't in a militant way that I just wanted to go out and fight. We didn't do that. We had all dignity, we had all grace, we had all glory. So once that entourage of them folks came up there, like they were going to fight a war, all of a sudden, tear gas was shot. We stood as long as we could, Lyman, and when that gas started hitting that air, we had to take off running. And we were running and running. Thank God I wasn't Miss Cute Little Maida that day in a pair of high heels because I would have been falling all on the ground. You'd been stuck in the ground I would have been huh? stuck in the ground. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, oh, I was decked out. I was decked out. I was in my little cutie pie outfit. But that particular day, I was in some tennis shoes. Thank God I was, because when they shot that tear gas, we started running. And the brothers, they were helping the sisters. We were crying. We didn't know what was going on. But we had to get out of there. Because that tear gas, why did you shoot tear gas? Wasn't nobody doing nothing. I still, to this day, don't understand why did they have to be called up. Wasn't nobody doing nothing. My car was parked over by James Blaine Moore Hall, which is the engineering building. On that street, when you turned off of Harding Boulevard and you came down that street, the education building, Stuart Hall, the music building, Harris Hall, the fine arts building, the home economics building, the biology chemistry building, the engineering building, the architecture building, that used to be a two-way street. Now when you go on campus, it's a one-way street. My car... My mama and daddy had bought us a car. My car, my sister had graduated. My car was parked all the way on that side of the campus. I finally got to my car. The guys were helping us to get in our cars. We were crying. By the time I got off campus, I got to the overpass that takes you now across. That overpass didn't come until years later. And the only reason why they built that overpass is because when we would be trying to get to even when I went to Southern University Laboratory School and uh, Limas would pick us up, my daddy had a, a, a dear friend, he would pick us up, uh, me and my sister and Stephanie Means, her mom owned Gilbert Funeral Home, Limas would pick us up. Long story short, if he got on scenic, cross Swan, a lot of times, we couldn't get to school on time because of the railroad track, and they would run a train. So later on, when I was up there, maybe after I graduated from high school, they built that bridge, which is where it is now. By the time I got to that red light at Scenic and Hard, I had my radio on, and broadcast came on and said two students had been killed. So the broadcast came on that quick? Yeah. Yeah. 
the radio station. Before, I don't, I, got, I don't, I don't know camera. if it was WJBO. I don't know what station I was listening to. But whatever station I had on in my car, about time I got in my car, drove off campus, got off of that campus, didn't know what was going to happen next, boom, found out two students had so, been so, killed. So, so you knew about the tear gas, but you don't remember the gunshots? I, I wasn't there when the gunshot. I think that maybe when they shot the tear gas, whoever that Nick Kumpoop was that didn't have to shoot the gun or the or whatever he had, the rifle, that's when... Denver and Leonard were killed. And they they were doing nothing. All I remember when I left the academic building, all I remember was when we exit the building, we all stood on that street that runs perpendicular right there. Mayberry is to the left, right there on that corner. We all were standing in the street. All I remember was seeing the students standing across the front of the administration building. That's all I can remember. I don't remember when they got shot. All I know was about the time. When the, when the tear gas was shot out, then the people's eyes starts to burn. Yeah, and so, we started so running. So y'all running for cover now. We running for cover. And back in, what, November, November 16th, the same day, I was on a panel down at the Old State Cap Capitol by way of Professor Angela Bell, the NAACP, they did a uh, did an anniversary commemoration uh, program. Fifty year anniversary. Fifty year anniversary. Okay, how did that go? That went very, very, very well. It was at the Old State Capitol. It started at five o'clock. I was on the panel uh, with uh, many of those advocates that were there during that time. Uh, Ricky, who was one of the Leaders. He was from Alabama. He was on the panel. What's his full name? I don't know his Ricky, full name. I think it's Ricky Malik Hill. Yeah, yeah, Ricky Hill. Uh, Fred, from what I understand, had transitioned. Fred Prejean, he had transitioned. Uh, but his wife was there. I was there. Uh, there were some other people who were involved in the movement Brenda that were William, on the Brenda, panel. Brenda Williams. Mm-hmm. And Sabu, Sabu. Yeah, I have I have a copy yeah, of the program. All of us that were on the panel, and all of us had maybe like about three minutes at the most to talk about, uh, you know, what we witnessed. Uh, from what I understand, they are the students in the law center are wanting to continue and open up the investigation because it's never been resolved. Nobody's never been. Uh, pinpointed to say you were the one that shot those brothers. They weren't doing anything. So at that particular time, I drove home. My parents, we were building our home in Parkwood Terrace. We were living at Fairway View Apartments on College Drive. My mom was a teacher. She was at work. My daddy was at home. And I want to talk about him because he owned and operated a very lucrative restaurant and lounge. And when I got to the apartment, I went straight to the bedroom and I fell on my knees and I said, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he was like, he used to call me Monkey. He said, oh, well, Monkey, what's the matter? And I told him what I had experienced. I was comforted by my parents throughout that whole time because that was very traumatizing for me and a lot of us who were young. We'd never experienced anything like that. Uh, but what ended up happening was for the duration of that semester, the university completely shut down. 
what we you call that these days that was a declaration of war yeah because they that they they the war against a, a group of students really mm -hmm. so they, they they i mean that's what it was that's what they it was declare war against you all. that's what it was and it was so unnecessary and i'm gonna tell you every november 16th since that day since that time it's not a time in november that i don't recapture or that day of knowing what happened to two innocent students who parents sent them to come to school to get their education and they were killed for no reason whatsoever they didn't go in there busting the doors down knocking the windows out at the administration building all they did was stood across the front of the building there was nothing violent there that those people had the audacity to come up there with all that artillery. I'm telling you, they rode up there like they were going to Vietnam War somewhere. So we were out from that day all the way up until after the first of the year into 1973. All classes were shut down. From, from November the 16th of 1972, until about January the 15th? Of January 1973, all classes were dismissed. So almost two months y'all was out of school. Two months. Every, every student in any class, you had to go to each one of your instructors. Each instructor was responsible for giving you the remaining studies of that particular class that you had to complete. We didn't have no computers at that time. We didn't have no cell phones at that time. So however, whatever the way was, if we had to write it out, type it out, you had typewriters, that's how it had to be done. But we had to be responsible for completing our coursework. So what was the vibes or feelings like when y'all returned back in 1973? I know it was an adjustment for me. And I'm sure it was an adjustment for everybody else because then all we could do was recall what had happened. And with no answers, why it happened? That, that's my question. That was the three-letter word, why. Why? Nobody was doing nothing. If we did that protesting through that time and we had no violent acts, crimes, nothing. And plus, y'all was protesting that, what you call the HBCU, mm -hmm. would provide y'all with what? Well, there were academic things that needed to change. I think um, it was just a lot that seemed to be on the table that, you know, we just wanted to uh, be better growth and development for the students at the university, you know, for the overall educational functioning of the university. Um, but every time we did talk or they talked, it was nothing where it was no loud outbursts or anybody was causing any any trouble. So um, to this day, it really hurts me here in my heart for Denver Smith and Leonard Brown's people, family, to have lost their loved one for no reason whatsoever. Mm. So I don't know what the uh, School of Law is gonna do at Southern University. But in contact with Professor Angela Bell, who's a very dear friend of mine, I understand that the students want that investigation to be open. They want to see and find out 
about uh, uh, getting something there to negate what caused all of that. And uh, let me just interject on that note. Uh, my papi, uh, Dr. Attorney Johnny A. Jones, who you interviewed on your podcast yeah, program. Yeah, because it made a clock McDonough. That's why it happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was very, very instrumental in going to Southern University Law School. A lot of times Angela would call me and say, hey, I need Dr. Attorney Johnny A. Jones to come up here. I need him to come and talk to the students. He had a lot to do with uh, trying to focus on those students, trying to find out exactly what went on and what happened. And I think at maybe some point in the very beginning, uh, Poppy probably was very uh, involved with trying to find out exactly what had happened. Now let's get let's move back to your your dad. My dad. What was that? What was his name again? Papi. Your your dad. My daddy. My daddy's name is Moses L. McDonald, known mm -hmm. as Mac. <laughs> From New Orleans. From New Orleans. Now tell us about the Mac. The Mac. <laughs> my heart. Love my daddy dearly. Immaculate dresser. Okay. He wore the finest of the finest. The shoes, the outfit he had on, and the hat matched. My daddy. They, they call him pimp daddy back in the day. Yeah, now. yeah. He ain't wasn't no pimp now. But my daddy would wear colors of clothes that he did all his shopping in New Orleans. At Rubenstein's oh. on Canal. That's where he would get his hat. He had a friend from India that made a lot of his two-piece uh, attire that he wore when he was at his place of business and his suits. Um, my daddy, we did a lot of traveling in Los Angeles. We always went west for family vacations. His month off for vacation would be in August. He closed down his business, Morico Showcase Lounge and Restaurant located at 1515 Harden Boulevard, right there on Harden Boulevard, right when you get to the red light at Scenic. There's a jack-in-the-box there. That used to be a, 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 a fast food restaurant that was owned by Dr. Louis A. James. I thought it was a burger burger chef first. Yeah. That's it. Uncle Louis owned that. It Dr. was burger James chef. owned that? Yeah, yeah. Right, Dr. Yeah. James owned that. And then you had C.J. Gilliam's optometrist uh, uh office right next to that next to that where daddy had Morico showcase lounge and restaurant for 21 years uh that building is still there so your dad owned Morico Morico showcase lounge and restaurant what about the barbecue the barbecue who did the barbecue he had two chefs there, huh? Lucius and Mama Smith. They did all the cooking. Not big Lucius, huh? No, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. Lucius, big Lucius was a musician. Right. Lucius that worked in the uh, kitchen at Marico's, he worked at the restaurant, Italian restaurant, which was located on Airline Highway called The Village, right across the street where the sports academy Stories right. that used to be an Italian restaurant called The Village. He was the chef there, That's but he also worked at Marico's. Marico's during that day of segregation was where African Americans went. Yeah. They had the finest of food, 
They had the finest of entertainment. You had Katie Wickham. You had Red Tyler. You had Nancy Wilson. You had, uh, uh, what's her name? Something Brazil. He had the finest of entertainment on Thursday nights. That's when he had his entertainment. He had the restaurant, and I have pictures of that. I'd like for you, I'll show Very that good. to you. You had pictures of that uh, in the front. Very lucrative business. That's where the professors went, the coaches went, the... Uh, what year, what, what, do you remember what year you opened up over there? I was in elementary school, so that was in the 60s. So your dad owned Mariko. Your yeah. father was... The, was he was. Why, 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 why the name it Mariko? I don't know why daddy named that Mariko's, <laughs> but that was the name of it. Mariko's Showcase Lounge and Restaurant. Finest of foods. To the front was the restaurant. He had all the tables and the chairs. And then in one area, almost to the back right side, he had a huge white baby grand piano. And like when Bobby Powell would perform, Katie Wicker. Mm, Bobby Powell. Yeah, when Bobby boy. Powell, I mean, when Katie Wickham would perform, she played the piano with her butt. <laughs> and she kept the notes. She kept the notes. But see, I was I was too young to go. Okay. He would let me come in and get a little bit of this, but hey, he couldn't let me stay. So he would let me come in and I'd go and he had the bar with all the drinks and, and then he had the bar where the people would sit down with the tables. But you know, on the other side where he did all the serving, he would let me come in and he had this little uh, wash thing. And I would take the glasses and he had the, the hot water with the soap and I would wash the glasses in the hot water and then I would take them and I would dip them and then I would wash them around like a brisk brush. And then I would wash them and then I would dip them in more hot water to get the soap off of them. And then I would take them and I'd put them in the uh, tray. So behind there, he had the restaurant. And it was laid out. Red tablecloths, red. I got I got the glasses. I got oh, some so, of the oh, napkins. So, so, so I got he, the plates. So it was top of the line. It was top of the line, baby. And, and, and he, top, he had top shelf drinks. Top you know? shelf drinks. <laughs> Top okay, chef drinks. I have a box. I have a box that has all of the pictures that every entertainment of Daddy having at Mariko's. He always had Al Potter, who was a very well known photographer, and John Williams, who was a very well African American photographer that would come and take pictures. I have a box of all the pictures of the entertaining. Some of these brothers and sisters that are still living here, they own these pictures. I've, I've talked to some of them and they say, I need to come and see some of those pictures. But he had a wall, he had an office. Like when you walked in, he had a seating area over here, he had a seating area over there, he had the dance room right there, he had the men's bathroom, he had the ladies' bathroom. Then you went further back, the bar was like from here all the way down that area. But like when you walked in, that was a little walkway, and you go through that area, you make a left, that's where he had his office. That's where he did all his book work and kept all whatever. But in there, he had like a little seating area, but he had a big wall box, as big as this windowsill, that he had every picture that he would take that he had. Then, like I say, you went through the lounge, 
Then you went through to the restaurant, and then uh, he had red tablecloths, cloth, red tablecloths, red cloth napkins, his uh, 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 stainless steel silverware. Uh, he had the red stem water glasses. He had the red plates. And let me tell you something. I have the original menu. You might have been able to get a steak, uh, a ribeye steak for $2.50. $2. I'm telling you. Two, I'm going to show you the two, two big ones I, baby. for a steak. <coughs> Marico's was where you could go sit down and like all that money you pay like at some of these other restaurants. You got the finest of food because Lucius was a chef. Mama, uh, Mama Smith, she was a little bitty something, but she had some fire in her. But she could cook. She could throw down in the kitchen. So you tell, you tell me y'all had two great restaurants over there because Ethel's was over there too. Ethel's was over there. Marico's was over there. Then you had uh, you had uh, uh, this older man on Swan Street when you turn off of um, Scenic. I can't think of his name, but he was an elderly man. And he always had on his white shirt and his white apron. You could go to his restaurant right there where McKnight's dentist office is on the left. Okay. What type of food he served? Breakfast. Okay, breakfast. You know, then you had College Drive on, on Swan Street. Then at that time you had Benoit's. Which was a barbecue place. Well, College Drive was more like ice creams. No, a College Drive, uh, the the little eatery. You could go in there and get the best hamburgers. Oh, hamburgers! You okay. could get milkshakes and all that. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Ice yeah. cream, milkshake. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm saying you had all those different businesses in Scotlandville, grocery stores, uh, poultry Self stores, self-sustaining, self-sustaining. You had the uh, uh, Charlie's Shoe Shop. All these African American communities, we didn't have to go nowhere else. Doing in doing segregation, we ain't had to go nowhere else. We had everything right there in our own neighborhoods. We had our brothers and our sisters that were running everything. But let me just tell you this, um, Matt. He was such a fine, a good, good, good daddy. He took such good care. He called us his three girls: Thelma Louise, Betty Colleen, and Maida Yvonne. Okay, so so you had you got another sister? You no, got my mama. Oh yeah. My mama. Your mama there with Thelma Louise. All right, then. Okay. Betty Carleen, who's okay. now Naima Carleen and Maida right. Yvonne. And every year, we would go to the West Coast. But one thing that was so funny, whenever it was time for him to close, he had to be closed at 2 o'clock. Because if he wasn't closed at 2 o'clock, the people would come and say, oh, we're going to give you a fine. We're going to shut you down. Guess what he would say? What's that? Hotel, motel, holiday inn, but you can't stay here. <laughs> so that meant anybody time to go. that was in there, you had to go. No matter where you don't matter, no matter where you go. Hotel, you can't stay motel, <laughs> holiday inn. So he the one made that song, huh? Who? Uh, uh, that song, the hotel motel. I don't know head. where that song came from, but that's what my daddy would call out and say, "You got to go." So 
my daddy was a loving daddy. He was a spirit-filled man. He took care of his three girls. He was such a loving daddy. Oh, God, I miss him so much. But like I say, we would always travel to California. So going out on the West Coast in the 70s, you know, the dressing was out there was a little bit more up, uprooted than what these folks were doing down here. They were slow down here. Mac would bring the finest of what he bought out in California. And them little folks over at Southern High, which is where I went to high school, they used to tease me. Moses, yeah, your daddy be wearing them purple pants. Mac with the purple pants. And Mac with the this color pants. And Mac with this color. And I say, well, you know what? Ain't this something later on in the years when it did hit here? Yeah, everybody else wear the color Everybody color was pants. wearing the purple pants. Uh -huh. But he was an immaculate dresser. He was a loving father. Um, he was a businessman before he went into uh, opening Mariko Showcase Lounge and Restaurant. He sold cars for Price LeBlanc. Oh, he sold cars for Price LeBlanc back then? Yeah, yeah. A brother was working at Price LeBlanc? Yeah, yeah. He sold cars for Price LeBlanc. And at that time, it was in St. Gabriel. He didn't have Price LeBlanc here. Okay. And every time he would go to Price LeBlanc, and I don't know if they still do it, but every time he would come home... That's smoked sausage. Smoked sausage. <laughs> sausage. You know exactly what I'm oh, talking about. Yeah, smoked yeah. sausage. And then during that time, when Daddy had Mariko's here in Baton Rouge, he had two or several friends in New Orleans, Louis Mason. He owned Mason's uh, Lounge, but on Claiborne, when you cross over, when you pass going up Claiborne South, you pass the Superdome and all that. You go down that, that hump. You go through that light right there on the right. Lewis Mason had his uh, lounge, and he also had a hotel, a motel. Okay. He also took a streetcar and made it into a lounge. It was Prout's that was up on the north side of Claiborne, and he had his restaurant. And he had a very lucrative restaurant. And behind that, uh, I mean lounge, behind that he had a restaurant. And i never forget when I got old enough and I would go out, my mama and my daddy, shoot, we'd go out. We wouldn't come in until the sun came up. And we'd go to Prout's. My daddy would tell Prout, I want a dose of grits. That's how he would order his grits. But I'm saying that to say Prout's, Lewis Mason, and my daddy, they had top lucrative lounges and restaurants. And because Mariko's was right off the gate to Southern University, they patronized my daddy because at that time, African-Americans didn't have nowhere else to go. But when integration came, boom. P passed us up, huh? That's why that's you don't have a lot of businesses in business to this day. Yeah, that's that's confusing. Huh? It's very very confusing. But uh, you could go to Mariko's and you get you would get the finest of foods and the prices on that menu were. But made it. Long as I've been knowing about Mariko, I never knew your daddy, your family owned Mariko. Yeah. Now let me explain something to you. Mariko's of what my daddy owned was M-O-R-E-C-O apostrophe S, Showcase Lounge and Restaurant, the first one. However, after my daddy went out of business and he no longer had Mariko's and he transitioned and we sold out, Fleming Day opened up Mariko's 
on Plank Road right there behind Delmont Village. On Plank Road, right there by Tony's. Right, right, okay there. Then you yeah, got Delmont right. Village. That's right behind right. there is where Fleming Day owned his business. That's more of a nightclub there. It's a nightclub, right. Yeah, okay. But he called it Mariko's, but he didn't spell it like my daddy. M-O-R-E-C-O apostrophe S. He spelled it M-A-R-E-C-O. He took the name. And he patterned himself behind my daddy because he used to frequently go to the very first Mariko's. Now, when when did your dad shut down Mariko's? My daddy shut down in 81. So because of illness? Yeah. He died of lung cancer at 59 years old. He was really young. He was very young. Very, very young. And in fact... I had just moved to Los Angeles. I, my daddy had never been ill, and I was married, and I relocated to Los Angeles with my husband and my, my only son. And um, by the time we traveled for three days from Louisiana, California, in a U-Haul truck, by the time I got to California, uh, I called to see how my daddy was doing because he was in right there at Baton Rouge General Hospital. Uh, and um, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and he had a brain tumor that metastasized. So he's very well missed, but uh, that was one of the places that African Americans could go and get good entertainment, good get good food, get good service. Have to worry about nobody coming in there. Now, now you say your, your, your mom was a school teacher? My mother uh, is a school teacher. My mother uh, attended Southern University. She is a former Miss Southern, 1942-1943. Your mother's a former Miss Southern? Yeah, What's yeah. Thelma who? Thelma Louise Weathers. Weathers, okay, W-E. W-E-T-H-E-R-S. Right. Uh, she held from the East Baton Rouge Parish School Board System by way of teaching, but she also attended Southern University Laboratory School, which is where Naeem and I attended, but she and my daddy, at that time, it was not Southern University Laboratory School, which we will be celebrating our 100-year centennial gala on Friday, December 23rd, 2022. At that particular time, it was not Southern University Laboratory School, it was Louisiana Demonstration School. At that time, the colors were not green and gold, they were gray and maroon. So my mom went there, she uh, graduated from Southern University, then she moved to Chicago. She attended Northwestern University, where she received her master's in education and 30 above plus in physical education. She was a choreographer. She danced with Catherine Dunham dance troupe. Uh, she opened up a lot of doors. Now, now I remember the Catherine Dunham. Dunham. Yeah, dance, that, dance school. Dance yeah, that's kind of like Alvin Ailey dance and, and, dance out, theater out of, Chicago. out of Chicago. Yeah. Uh, so she got all of her education uh, after she graduated from Southern. Uh, she came back to Southern University. She taught physical education. She was one of the first coaches over the girls' team at Southern University. What the basketball team? Basketball team. Your mom was my mom. Yeah, she she was a coach. She was over the uh, girls' basketball team. And at that particular time, they had the men's gym in the back of the campus. 
where the administration building is, that building is still there, but I think they do like different kind of social activities. But that was another gym where like for Greek shows and other things, back girls basketball games, that's where it was held. And that building is still there. It sits right behind the administration building that's on Southern's campus. After Mami left Southern University in physication, then she went into East Baton Rouge Parish School Board System. And there she taught at Capitol, Capitol High School at that time, which is in Eaton Park community, was on Gus Young, right across the street from Martin, uh, Martin Luther King Community Center. Uh, now it's Capitol Elementary. But at that time, the very first Capitol High School was located there. Then they built Capitol High, which is now on North 23rd, right off of Fuquay Street. So Mami taught physical education there. Her students loved her. She was over the majorette, she was over the pepsters, she was over the cheerleaders. And at that time, the games, football games, were held right there on the grounds where the school is located. So Mommy had a beautiful group of young ladies who were the majorettes. I know many of them, some of the Smith sisters. And were, were you and your sister Mary, Marriott, majorettes? I was not. Naima was a majorette at, at Southern Lab. I was a cheerleader. But what I'm getting at, Mommy had such a good rapport with her students at Capitol High School. Many, many reunions that I would take her to. Men today who were students would come up to say, Miss McDonald, thank you for teaching me ballroom dancing because she did all of that with her students in physical education. And a lot of them, when I would take her to a lot of the later years before she transitioned to a lot of the school reunions, the men would come up and say, oh, Miss McDonald, thank you for teaching me ballroom dancing. Because then they were saying that they're married and when they would go to a ball, they would know how to do ballroom mm -hmm. dancing. But one thing that I can remember was with the majorettes, they had on those little white skirts. They had a Eisenhower kind of top, majorette. It was like a suit top, but it was like an Eisenhower cut. And they had these big lapels on them. And they had them big old white boots on with the red tassels. And they had that majorette hat on and they would line up on that breezeway all the way to the back of the, the hallway or the, or, the, or, the, or the breezeway. And the band would be lined up. And when them sisters would be marching, they would be stepping. Be like smoke coming out of them boots. <laughs> and I'd be marching right there with them. I'd be just a stepping. And then they would come down the breezeway and then the, uh, you, they still have the football field on that campus, but they don't use the field no more. But that's where Capitol played all their games. So anyway, long story short, Mommy taught PE, and then she left Capitol, and then she went and she taught at Woodlawn High School. But then at that time, she got out of physical education, and she started teaching earth science because with her degree, she could do that, you know. Uh, she got out of education. She taught science at Capitol High. Then she went to Capitol Middle, 
which is where Capitol Elementary is, but that's a whole new school there now, which was the old first Capitol High School. So she went back to the junior high school and she taught earth signs to the students until she retired. Mm -mm. Now you say you you got so much history in your family. You just, it just don't end. <laughs> but but all your, also your sister, Naimi, Na, Naima, was one of the first what? She was first dancing doll. She's one of the first original dancing dolls. Now, that, where, where at? At Southern University. Right. Now, I stand to be corrected because then I later heard some stories that there were another group of young ladies that were the first, uh, but they were not under the leadership of Gracie Perkins where Naima, Betty Carlene, was the first. Uh, Gracie Perkins was the choreographer and Lugwood Freeman, and between Lugwood Freeman being the band director at Southern University and then Dr. Greggs, I never forget when they first stepped out, there was a football game in Houston, Texas uh, at the Astrodome. And my mean daddy and I rode over, and my daddy had seats in the in the uh, suites at the Astrodome. I was like, I'm not sitting up here all the way up here in the top of this building. I want to go down there where all the, the student body was so I could be there juking and jamming with the band. <laughs> but I remember with that, she was one of the first when they traveled to Houston, they did not have their uniform that they were wearing. And they got across the Mississippi River Bridge from the story that I was told. And some kind of way, either Greg's or Lugwit or somebody made a contact to whoever the governor was. And about time they made it to Houston, what they wore to perform in, in the Astrodome had made it to Houston, Texas. They were in, and I got a picture of that too. They were in gold boots. They had on a gold sequence body top. They had a white cape around them that had gold sequins around it. And, you know, their arms were out, but it was a cape. And then they had a white hat or whatever, an off-white hat that had a feather in it. And baby, when them sisters walked up in there, I was hooping and hollering, go my sister, go my sister. But uh, yeah, so Naima, uh, she's married, she lives in New Orleans. Uh, she graduated uh, from Southern University in social work. She did attend LSU for a while. She was in uh, several dance groups at LSU, but then later she came back to Southern. She graduated in social work. She moved to Los Angeles. She worked out there with Children's Hospital she had some other very, very good jobs. And then later she went to USC and she got her master's. USC, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then she came back here to Baton Rouge and she worked for a while, later moved to New Orleans, uh, worked with the Department of Family and Children's Services. She was like a judicial assistant to Judge Ernestine Gray, but she's retired, but she does live in New Orleans. And she's my only sister. It was only two of us. It was only two of us, Betty Carlene and Mady Yvonne. 
All right. You got so much. Mr. Mayda got so, so and much. And then I, I also want to talk about my great-granddaddy, my granddaddy, Reverend Dr. Carl T. Weathers, his daddy. Uh, That's your mama's daddy. My mama's daddy is Reverend Dr. Carl T. Weathers. My granddaddy's daddy was William H. Weathers. He uh, lived here. The Weathers family actually hails from Woodville, Mississippi. Daddy Weathers, which is my granddaddy's daddy, which is my mama's granddaddy, my great-granddaddy, he was in the medical profession. I have a picture of him as well. His office was right there where Godshaw's is on Main Street. Godshaw's uh, department, department store. store. That building is still there. So you, I, your, your granddad, your great granddad, mm -hmm. had an office in there. He had his medical practice. Medical practice. What kind of? What kind of? He was a medical doctor. Oh. Okay, uh, uh, primary care, which is what they call now. He treated all cultures. He had blacks. He had whites. He had Italians. Uh, he had uh, his his uh, medical practice in that building, and he also had a pharmacy in that building that his brother. My granddaddy's brother, Uncle Bill, which is what we called him, who later became a dentist and had his practice in Chicago, he had a pharmacist in that building. So uh, right there where Garchard's is, is where Daddy Weathers had his medical practice. Yeah, your family had all, have all kind of rich history. Rich now, history. But they, he out of Woodville, you say? The family, Weathers family came out of Woodville, Mississippi. Okay, then, so you still have a lot of family up there in Woodville. Right? Still have family in Woodville, still have family. It was four siblings, Grandpa, Uncle Bill, Auntie Vangie, Auntie Thelma. Grandpa lived here, became a minister for 50 years, built Camper Memorial United Methodist Church. Now, who, built, who, who built Campus Memorial? My granddaddy, Reverend Dr. Carl T. Weather. So, that was, so he was the first pastor at that church? No, he wasn't the first. Uh -huh. He later became the pastor, but he built Camper uh, that is still the structure there now, but they've made some renovations. They've added on, but the original structure, my granddaddy was pastor and was uh, primarily, along with some of the other leadership in the church, built that church. The original structure of the church so, came under my granddaddy's leadership. So, and did you did you know you did you know him? Oh, Lord, yes, indeed. Oh, okay. Yeah, like when, before we moved to Valley Park, that's who we stayed with. All right. And he was in the ministry for 50 years. Okay, he then. pastored several churches. He pastored St. Mark United Methodist Church. He was a pastor at Wesley United Methodist Church. He was pastor at Camphor Memorial United Methodist Church. He built Camphor Memorial United Methodist Church. My grandmother, Betty Louise Monterese Weather, she was the first uh, lady, uh, he pastored for years, nearly, no, not nearly, Hughes. Mother Betty used to play the piano at Hughes United Methodist. These are churches where my granddaddy pastored. They kind of moved them around. Later, after he got out of the actual pastorate, then he became district superintendent. And when he became district superintendent, then he was the top minister over all of the ministers in the Louisiana district. Oh, okay then. Mm -hmm. and so you lived with him as a child? We lived with them until my parents bought our first home in Valley Park, and then that's where we lived. But uh, 
Grandpa, Grandpa was here with us until maybe the late 80s, uh, mid 80s, and then Mother Betty, Mother Betty lived to be either 94 or 96 years old. But they led the Methodist ministry for years, and with Granddaddy being district superintendent, he was over all the ministers in the Louisiana district. And I can remember times over at 2029 Gracious Street, which was their home, the ministers would be seated at the dining room table. They would have their meeting going on. They would be talking about what they were doing and giving reports or whatever they need to give to Grandpa being district superintendent. The minister wives, Mother Betty, my grandmother was president of the district of the minister wives. The minister wives would be in the back den area meeting and eating and greeting. And all the little children just be running around all everywhere. <laughs> but, but, I mean, that's just a phenomenon, uh, historical facts, facts about your family. Just, just all by itself, that's a lot of history in one mm -hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's just it is truly amazing. But now, but if you lived in Valley Park, I lived in Valley Park. How did you end up in school on Southern University campus? At that time, I was attending Choctaw Elementary, which is in Old Bird Station, off of Greenwell Springs Road, off of Choctaw. We were attending Choctaw Elementary. I was in the fourth grade. Naima was maybe in the sixth or seventh grade. And then my parents decided to transfer us to Southern University Laboratory School. So I started at Southern University Laboratory School in fifth grade until I graduated in 1971. And you enjoyed that experience at Southern Lab School? I did. I did. I mean, you got some great people. I did. Come out of Southern, Southern University Lab I School. enjoyed it. And uh, I, I loved Choctaw. Choctaw being a neighborhood school, that is when teachers were teachers. They didn't play. You didn't come in there with your pants hanging down. You didn't come in there with no loud talking. You came in there and you learned. All of my elementary school teachers impacted me. Corrine Darlene Maybuse was the principal hmm. at that time. I remember that name. And uh, Miss Betty Winston was the secretary at that time. And all of my teachers on the elementary school level, which today I'm not putting down teachers, but you got a different breed of teachers in the school. And if you didn't do what you were supposed to do, that teacher was calling mommy and daddy and saying, Mady Yvonne was talking too much in class. Boom, 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 boom. Or maybe Yvonne didn't finish her homework. Or maybe Yvonne, whatever, whatever, whatever. That's when teachers made sure that students were preparing for their future and made sure that, you know, they were learning. And it was the same thing at, you know, Southern Lab. We had good administrators. We did. I played in the band. I sang in the choir. I was a cheerleader. Naima was a majorette. We were in the thespian club. We were very, very active. Well, you was in all kind of clubs, right? Yeah, I was in all kind of clubs. <laughs> to this day, you're still in a lot of I, clubs. I'm still in a lot of clubs. Did, uh, your family started some of them clubs or just something that y'all ended up joining? A lot of them were ones that were already in motion that we joined being in, in school. Uh, one thing I'd like to say about my me, 
oh, during that time, and I have pictures that I can show you, Mommy was a part of a group called the Matrons Club, Junior Matrons. These were some ladies, Sadie Kill, Thelma Perkins, Inez Anderson, Inez Boston, Janie Cox. It was a group of them, about uh, 20, 25 ladies. And what they did was they had the Junior Matrons Club. What they did was they were the ones, if it may have been a sorority, that did it. But they were like the top elite group that presented girls such as myself and my sister to society by way of debutante balls. The place that we were presented to society was Jack Taw Hotel. Where is that? Right now it's the Hilton downtown over there by Po' Boy Lords. Oh, okay. Then. That was Jack Taw Hotel. That's where the matrons before integration they would have their balls maybe in a gymnasium at some of the schools because we couldn't go into the hotels so they would have the gymnasium decorated immaculately but then later on when i made my debut in 70 and naima made her debut in 66 we both were queens. Her year, she was queen. My year, I was queen. And the way that we were queens, and my picture is right over there in that corner, <laughs> me being queen, is because mommy had seniority over the other ladies. So whoever had seniority and it was time for that daughter to be presented, then that's how you became queen. So the so both sisters was queen at that time. In that in that year for Naima when it was time for her, that was in sixty six, that she was presented with her group of the girls that came under that so that now, time. Now, now, you know, I still haven't quite understood this. When they say you made your date what's the name of the organization was? Junior Matrons. Okay. junior matrons had to make their debut. Mm -hmm. And what do what do that mean? We were presented to society. That was at a time that, you know, they put us in different classes where we learned charm, etiquette, social graces. We learned how to walk. We learned how to talk. We learned how to sit. We learned different social graces. They call it social graces? Yeah, yeah. So if that's what, I, you know, that's you, the term that I would use. Did you learn from Miss Perkins? Who, who was your? Uh, All of them were teaching us. Like who? Give us an idea. Uh, Mama Lawless, who Mama, who had Mama Lawless Play School right there on Maximilian, right there where Channel 9 is, off of Government Street. She had a big house, two-story house, where her family lived. Right next door to that, she had Mama Lawless Play School. She was one of the matrons. Her picture's right over there on the wall. Uh, my mama, Sadie Kill, uh, whose husband, Charles Kill, was principal at Capitol High School during that time. You had Inez Boston, you had Thelma Tagno, you heard you had Earlene Williams, you had Inez Anderson, um, you had um what's her name? Miss Wiggins. Her husband, Adolph Wiggins, was postmaster at the main post office downtown. It was an elite group. I have a picture of the matrons when they were given one of their balls in that long 
formal gown, long gloves up to their elbows, hair immaculately dressed, had on all their jewels. I mean, they were decked out. Those are the ladies that helped to make me be the woman that I am today. So when you were presented to society as a debutante, that meant that you were at a point in your life where you could go out on a date, you could go out and do other little social things so that, together. So that, that, that was what you call a rite of passage. I guess it was. In, in, in another form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had their balls. When I came up in 70, I was the queen, and I had my picture, the portrait that my mom had of me, and a portrait that she had of Naima at the Ponderosa. I had my, 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 my portrait. But at that time, uh, we were in our long white gowns. All of the debutantes, you had to be in a long white gown. You were presented to society. Your, your father uh, escorted you throughout the presentation. My mom actually choreographed the waltz that we did after we did the promenade with our daddies. We had a young man who might have been a boyfriend or a friend who escorted us and we did a waltz. And that waltz that we were taught was choreographed by my mom and was taught to all of the debutantes who were presented throughout the time that they stopped doing the debutante balls. They stayed in connection, but it was so funny. They were the junior matrons, but then as they became older, they dropped the junior and they just called themselves the matrons. <laughs> <laughs> And the last president of the matrons was my mother, but they were some positive role models. So, so I mean, so who else were some of the, uh, the, the the presidents of the organization? I think Sadie Kill was one. Auntie Janie might have been who, a president. Auntie Janie, who was Janie that? Cox. Okay. Uh, I think uh, Nona Gray was one of the. Presidents. I don't know, but I have a book right here. The Junior Matrons, Matrons Club members. Okay. There's a book in there that's going to give a mommy. Uh, at that time when she was president, she put a little book together. And because me being in PR, which is another story of my life, being in PR, she put a book together for the matrons. And uh, whenever they had their meetings, that little book gave all the names of the matrons, their birthday, uh, their husband's name. Uh, it lists all the past presidents. So I can't really rattle off all of the names. Well, that's good. You done good. You done good. But I have the information right here. Well, now, how did you end up in public relations, what you call PR? I ended up in public relations. I graduated in child development. I should have gone and gotten my master's, but I was so ready to get married. You graduated from where? Southern University okay. in child development with a minor in psychology. And then I decided, oh, I'm going on and I'm getting married. And my mom and my daddy were like, you really need to go get your master's. You really need to just finish your education. Well, I went on and I ended up getting married. Uh, however, uh, I taught school for a while. 
I, I was a kindergarten teacher, first, second grade teacher at Harding Elementary under Mr. Nathan Mencia. So I taught school and then later I moved on into uh, uh, becoming a secretary, administrative assistant. Then I went into like social services projects and things like that. Uh, I got married, moved to Rochester, Minnesota, came back home, got pregnant, had my, my, my only son, beautiful son, Brian Augustus Clark. Uh, later on, back in the 80s, when I moved from Los Angeles, after I divorced, I came back here to Baton Rouge, and I just started my public relations business after that, and uh, that entails it being MM Public Relations Consultant, which is made of McDonald public relations consultant. So I do PR work in the community for different organizations uh, by way of uh, being on TV, talking about whatever the project is. If you have a project, I get you on the radio, I get you in TV, I get you in the newspaper, I get you wherever it is you oh, want to oh, go. Oh, oh, and made it go get you there. Yeah, I'm going to get you there. How do you say, instead of just saying, how do you say that, you you made me do it? Yeah. Made her do it. Huh? Made her do it. And I <laughs> am very firm and stern. If I'm going to take on a project and I'm going to do it and you want me to do it, I do it from inception to completion. Oh, you going to do it. you going to do so it So right even now. after I may do a project, the project may be over, but I've got more work that I have to do after that because after I've gotten you on Channel 9, Channel 2, Channel 33, then I'm getting your article in the newspaper to follow up to say what your project was. Or I'm getting you in some of the other local publications. Uh, yo, you keep it rolling. You I keep, keep it rolling. rolling. I when keep I, it rolling. When I tell you all, she's one of the best at what she does. I mean, we, she done done, I mean, she done got me before Dr. Attorney Johnny A. Jones, who's no longer with us. We lost him in May of this year. But because of her, we did a great, great interview. Uh, Julia Bradford Moore, nine, just made 97. Delta Theta, what they call it? What? Delta, Delta Sigma Theta? Delta Sigma Theta. Mm -hmm. uh, she had me to interview her. The wonderful uh, uh, Griffith and Freya Rivers. Uh, Rivers. Mm -hmm. Those two were good friends, too. I had the opportunity to interview both of them. And the most powerful things is when she, I got a chance to work with her. Uh, because of a dear friend, John, John, John Fob, Henderson, John Forbes. Henderson Forbes, who mm -hmm. is no longer with us either, had been pushing for years to get her mother was a nurse in the Baton Rouge area at the Baton Rouge General Hospital. And uh, John wanted them to honor those ladies who was the first. And I had a chance to speak with John before her, before she passed on. But Maida and I had, a, because of Maida, I had a chance to interview these nurses that we had only three at the time that we interviewed but it was it was about six or seven a few more than that who was part of the uh this great undertaking when it became the first black nurses in the late 50s early late 50s it was in the late 50s, late 50s at 50s, on uh, fort the, south wing at the baton rouge Fort's, general at the fort south wing the baton rouge general and we had a chance to to put on i'm gonna let you tell us story. Oh, one other person that 
uh, I was instrumental in helping you interview was Audrey Neighbors Jackson. Uh, Miss Jackson, yeah. my dear Remember friend. Remember we went up to Zachary. She probably just made 97, 96, 96. Tanti is probably about 96 now. I think she was 95. I think now she's about 96. 96. So you had an opportunity to oh, interview wonderful. her as well. Wonderful. What she is just got so energetic, so, so much life and spirit. And she also is a what? She's a Delta. <laughs> and delta. A, that room where we interviewed, you don't see nothing she, but Delta Sigma Theta in there. She got a Delta room, there. I mean, but she, yeah. I mean, she does genealogy. She is a wonderful, a mm -hmm. fire, fire, just a, a ball of fire and wonderful person. Yeah. But tell us about the The, the, the nurses. nurses. That okay. Was a, that was a wonderful, thank you for letting me have the opportunity to work with you and giving me the opportunity to make be a part of that. Thank you for being a part of it. And as I move on on that uh, project, Joan Henderson Forbes had been the one to conceive the idea. The Full South Wing at Baton Rouge General Hospital Mid-City was only one wing where African-American patients and nurses were housed. They only had one bathroom, male, female. It was not nothing but one floor. And the Ford Wing was on what floor? It was floor, on the Fourth South floor. Wing. Right. Yeah, Fourth South Wing. Um, there is where the, these nurses worked. It might have been about... 25 to 30 of them, uh, there were three initial, Gwendolyn Miller, Gwendolyn Woods Miller, Catherine Jackson, and Earl Dean Joseph. Those were actually the three original, but later there were more that moved on into that. And, you know, being a nurse, then you had shifts. Uh, Joan's mother was Ida Henderson, and she was one of the nurses in involved with that era but at that particular time in segregation if like uncle lewis dr lewis james or dr leo s butler uh or uncle jimmy bernard all of these african-american doctors dr hall um if a patient african-american patient had to go to the hospital the african-american doctor could not admit the patient they could only get that patient back to them after the patient was admitted. The white doctor took care of all of that when they were in the hospital and they were being treated. But once they were discharged, they went back to their original doctor. At that particular time, the rooms were not that big. It was only one floor. If the rooms were full, they had us all on the hallway, beds all on the hallway. These ladies, who were honored on July 28th at Baton Rouge General Mid-City, the five of them, Gwendolyn, Catherine, Earl Dean, the original, then there was Lucinda Bynum, then there was Audrey Cotton. There were some others that could have been there but were not able to make it. But during this time of segregation, they couldn't eat in the cafeteria. They had to go to a little disclosed area where they had to go get their food until one day Gwendolyn Miller decided, Gwendolyn Woods, I guess, she just decided, I'm not going to the window, and you're going to pass me my food through a tray, on a tray through a window. She went on in the cafeteria, and she decided, okay, I'm coming, I'm going to sit down and get my food just like all these other nurses. So she broke that barrier. However, one of the most significant part of the story that I learned, and God rest her soul, Joan wanted this to happen, she had been fighting and fighting and fighting, trying to get those people at the hospital to do it. She wasn't getting anywhere. Well, praise God, Joan transitioned in April. 
and I decided I was taking the torch. And she had passed the torch on to me. And I said, these ladies are going to be recognized. But also, let me just interject that at that time, on 4th South, the equipment that these nurses, our African-American nurses had to use, was handed down from the other folks. The other folks? What do you mean by other folks? White folks. <laughs> Other words, me, other words, used equipment. Used equipment. Okay. So the thermometers, the bedpans, the uh, the stethoscope, whatever they needed to treat us, African-Americans, came down from all them other floors. Them other folks, white nurses, they didn't come and help them. If they were short, these nurses talk about how they had to carry on hours and hours. But one thing that they say in their story is they never lost a patient. Mm. They never lost a patient. And what else? And they had... No, no cross-contamination. No cross-contamination. Correct. Mm -hmm. They never lost a patient. They sterilized. They sanitized. They did everything that had to be done to carry on and do what needed to be done. That was like back in the 50s. Not until 2022, July 28th, when I worked for a good three months along with Mr. L.D. Azubra, who is the podcast uh, host of this show, came on board and we knocked it out. We say we're going to get this done, and we did. And not just that, when, when we finally got thanks to uh, thanks to the Baton Rouge General right. that they obliged us and they honored these ladies, uh, thanks to Miss Samia. Samia Ledoux. Ledoux. And, uh, Trish, Trish, uh, Trish, Trish Gidry, Trish Gidry for being there, and the Kelly and another young lady. Uh, they was very uh, helpful in, in orchestrating the process, but they didn't think it was going to be what? They didn't think it was going to be a success. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to put us in the lobby. I said, we ain't having no pep rally here. We want to be in a closed area where it could be a significant, phenomenal moment for these ladies who had to go through a struggle. Yeah, but mean, they made it. Yeah, these ladies in their eighties, something almost ninety. Yeah, they were gonna put they, where they wanted to put them at. They again. Put, put us in the lobby. In the lobby, in where the everybody, lobby. everybody walking through, walking talking. through. You coming through and the so, front doors so of the hospital, and here we gonna be on the and side. They, and, they, and they come out honoring somebody. Thank you. In an open area. In like an that. open area, and you got the gift shop. You got the information desk. You got people walking in from the public coming into the lobby and then that's where you were supposed to put us no it ain't gonna happen look when they say when when they, when they brought the headers out we went, we had a meeting that morning yes and we was and we were standing out there and the two young lady was giving us a up a update on what how this thing was gonna happen on right the, in july mm -hmm. and when they said they brought us in the lobby we looked and they said we're gonna sit them right here we looked at each other they got to be kidding, huh? Mm -mm. Ain't going to happen. And I told May to look, man, I, I don't know what else. I don't want to be bothered with with that, with that May. So, oh, no, they're going to change this. Oh, yes, they, gonna... they, they sure did. Because I this. told them, I said, we're not having this in no lobby. This ain't no pep rally going on here. Hoo, hoo, ha, rah. Yeah, we're going to give them that little honoring later on. So then, as I had been working and getting everything set up and calls the cell phone was ringing the my land phone was ringing the cell phone ringing the land phone ring this went on from may to july at least three months it was working and working and working 
So I told the young lady, I said, we're not having it in the lobby. We gotta find another place, another place to have it. She called me. She said, well, oh, we're gonna move it to the chapel. I said, I'm on my way. I could have walked over there to the hospital. Because you wanted to see what the, what the chapel looked like. I wanted to see what the chapel looked like. So went to the hospital, met her at the front of the hospital, and then we went down this corner, and we uh, got to the chapel. I said, this is not going to work. This is too small. These nurses had their family, their church member, their neighbor, their cousin, Papi, Parain, Mimi, everybody was coming. The community was coming. I said, this is going to be too small. Well, nothing else was done. But guess what? That day, that little chapel, they didn't know that all us folks <laughs> were going to pack that chapel. We packed that chapel. They had to put chairs in the aisle. The people were standing all around the wall. The people that couldn't get in the chapel, and they had to even put people up to the front of the chapel to just stand to be in the room. We had people standing all out on the hallway. And, and we and got gotten out to some politicians. Yes, the the mayor was there. Uh, who, 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 who's the uh, mayor? The mayor, Sharon Weston Broom, mm -hmm. she was there. She had a representative was, that was there. We had... Uh, Senator Cleo Fields, Senator Regina Barrow. Uh, we had Representative C.D. Marcel. Uh, we had, uh, I think, council, some council people were there. Um, the room was packed. We were packed up in there like a bunch of sardines. But we were there. And then after we had a beautiful, beautiful program, then we went to the lobby for the unveiling, unveiling of, of, this, of this big old plaque. This little bitty plaque. I said, I ain't big enough to put in the bathroom somewhere. I looked at that. I, t I told him, I said, that is too small. I wanted to see one of those monumental plaques because this big old wall where they put it and this little old bitty plaque ain't even big as, uh, what, 11 by 17. You can't, you got to have a magnifying glass to go up there and read all the names that's on there. But praise God, the plaque is up there. I told him it's too small. We need a larger plaque. Well, that's okay. They did what they did. The fun of it was that morning, Deborah Boyski. The morning of what? Of the celebration and the program right. on the 28th. Deborah Borsky came and picked me up. She said, oh no, I'm coming to get you. Now, who, is, who is Deborah Borsky? Deborah Borsky is Gwendolyn Woods Miller daughter. Okay. She came and she picked me up the morning of. We went, I had some pictures that I collected from the nurses in frames and they gave me a lot of that memorabilia from their days. We set all that up in the chapel and outside where the reception was going to be. So long story short, we left there. Then we went, we picked up breakfast. We went by Gwendolyn's house, dropped off her breakfast. She didn't know I was in the SUV. Then we went and we picked up Catherine, who lives about five minutes from Gwendolyn. They came back. There was a long stretch black limousine parked in front of Miss Gwendolyn's house. Catherine was like, well, 
Where your mama go sit? She didn't even know I was in the SUV. I was in the back seat. And when she got in, I said, good morning, Miss Catherine. Maida. <laughs> Is that you, Maida? I said, yes, Miss Catherine. Baby, we got in that black stretch limousine. It was like about from here, my house on down here to the block. <laughs> we got in that limousine, Gwendolyn. She didn't know. Catherine, she didn't know. The guy, his name was Carl, and I remember that because that's my granddaddy's name. He was driving us, and boy, we were sitting in there, and he had the spiritual music going, and we were just jamming to the spiritual music. And all of a sudden, Catherine said, Where's the champagne? We don't have no champagne. <laughs> I say, Oh, Lord, I didn't bring no champagne, Miss Catherine. <laughs> So then we went and we picked up Miss Lucille. She lives off on Main Street. Then we went, we picked up Miss Audrey Cotton. They didn't know that they were riding in a limousine. I was on my cell phone. I called Mr. LT. I said, baby, we on our way. We riding in style. We ain't got no champagne, but we riding in style. Your profile. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I called Samil. We got to Florida in Acadia. I said, baby, we getting ready to pull up in the front of this uh, hospital. And baby, we pulled that's up. That's when Samir came, got me, said, look, yeah. they're about to pull up. And hey, what, happened, what happened when y'all pulled when up? When we pulled up, the TV cameras were out there. The newspaper photographers were out there. Everybody that was maybe a employee at the hospital were out there. They were shooting pictures. And the the people who came for the uh, the activity that day, they were the out there. It was a beautiful. It was a beautiful. And when we got out of the limousine, we stood in front of the limousine. I was standing in that line with the nurses and they were all decked out in beautiful attire. Oh, they were just oh, they were just beautiful. And the 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 flashes were just just blinking. I mean, and they were and they were just so excited. They, they were, were excited. They were excited. It, was, it was a beautiful moment. Oh, we just we're disappointed that Miss Miss Erdine could not be in the in limousine. In the limousine, right. But you know, but she we did get her at the at the limousine. Yeah, she her, did. She did. Her, She's her, in a wheelchair. Yeah, so but we she was able to enjoy that moment. But it was a a truly a spirit filled day mm-hmm. of joy, excitement, exuberance. Mm-hmm. And the celebration that these ladies say, we just doing our job. That's right. But Absolutely. You know, when you do such a wonderful job, you're going to honor. Be That's honor it. For it. And they were, when they got into the hospital lobby, they sat in chairs. They were interviewed for a few minutes. The community people that were there, they didn't know that we were going to pack that place the way that we did that uh-huh. day. I knew it. That's why I told them, this is too small. But, hey, we had to just go with what we went with. And it turned out to be a beautiful affair. And then we moved to the lobby, and they had a whole spread of food. And oh, they did. We thanked the Baton Rouge General because the food yes. was great. It was a, great. Y'all did a great job. Yeah, it was great. Food. Yeah, yeah. And the food kept coming. The food kept coming, and the 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 photographers were just snapping pictures the, the, after the, picture the after picture. The local news people was there to, to, to yeah. capture it. It was wonderful. It was wonderful, and uh, it aired on the. 5 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, and the 10 o'clock news. 
and uh, that was with all three stations, Channel 2, Channel 9, and Channel 33. But y'all know what, you know what happened, right, folks out there? Yeah. But the news people did not print nothing in the local newspaper. No, they did not. And that's a problem with Miss Mayweather. And that was a problem with me because that next day, I don't get a paper, but I ran around the corner and got me a paper. And when I ain't see nothing in the paper, I called back to Miss Amir. I said, well, now I know the Baton Rouge General Marketing Media Department did all the PR work. I did my thing on my end because I'm in PR. Where is there an article? I do not see nothing. I ain't seen nothing in some of the other local publications. So I got on the phone, and I started my homework, my project, my PR. Can't nobody tell me what I do when it comes down to my business. So anyway, long story short, I made contact with <clears throat> the newsroom. And then I made contact with um, uh, an editor, Mr. George Morris. And we were scheduled to do it on whatever day it was. To do what? Do an article for him to print in the Advocate newspaper. About what? About the nurses. All right. Yeah. About what happened and where we were from the inception of this project all the way to where we are now. So <clears throat> Mr. Mars called me. I was able to arrange a date and time for us to get together. We got together. We met up at um, Catherine Jackson's home. The uh, photographer came, he took pictures, and um, Mr. Morris did a wonderful article. That was July 28th when we did the program, the celebration, and the article came out on the front page of the living section on August 20th. And it had a old, not an old picture, but a very nice. One that we had never seen. Nothing, right, a, a very historical picture right. of the nurses in there nurse attire, their white dress, the white stockings, the white shoes, and they had the hat or cap or whatever they called it. He did a very nice spread. And, and you got uh, got an article put in what roads? What they oh, crossroads. Country roads. Country roads, yeah. Got an article put in uh, country roads. Uh, from that point on, I had been able to make contact with Congressman Troy Carter. He did a... Uh, Proclamations for each one of the nurses. And we'd like to thank Senator Congressman. Troy, Congressman Troy Carter for giving us the opportunity by honoring these ladies with a congressional um, proclamation. proclamation. Right. And every time we've called on a congressman, he's always been there and to move forward to help with any way he could. Right. Even when the time we call about. Papi. But uh, who is Poppy? Poppy, to me, is my godfather, who was 102 years old. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, he was a very uh, well-known attorney here in the Baton Rouge community. He was known all over the United States of America for his civil rights involvement, the Baton Rouge bus boycott. I call him Poppy because that's who he was to me, my godfather. I loved uh, all of my conversations and outings with him, but uh, Congressman Troy Carter was able to call Papi uh, attorney Dr. Johnny A. Jones on his 102nd birthday. I went up. He lived in the Presbyterian Apartments on North Street, 
on the 14th floor. I called his apartment the penthouse when Mr. LD and I and his daughter went up there. We went up to the penthouse. But long story short, Congressman Troy Carter uh, made a personal phone call. I was at the apartment with Poppy, got the call initiated. He talked to Poppy for about, oh, about 15, 20 minutes, had a good, very good conversation with him. And he also was at the celebration of life for Poppy, made a personal uh, appearance. But at the birthday brunch that we did, he sent one of his um, constituents uh, from his office, Miss Merkadale, I think her name was, and she came and she made a presentation. Uh, so uh, we really want to thank Congressman Troy Carter for his effort and all of the efforts of the uh, local constituents from the community coming out and supporting our endeavor that we did for the for the nurses. Uh, yeah, we, we truly, truly appreciate it. I mean, I, I, I tell you, the Senator, but he's a, a U.S. representative, uh, attorney uh, Troy Carter, and former uh, senator in Louisiana, Louisiana Senator Troy Carter, because every time we call up on you, my brother, you've been there. We did a, on the podcast, we asked him to do a salute to uh, to Attorney Carter, I mean, to Attorney Johnny Jones, and guess what? He did that. He handled he the business, and we truly appreciate all he's done and still doing. So we want to be able to call up on you again now, so be ready when we call up on you. Absolutely. And uh, But that was really one of the highlights of 2022. Yeah. And I could say in us. so many words that Joan transitioned in April, but her dream became a reality. And I know that uh, she uh, would be very, very proud to know that that was further recognition. I know that there have been some documentaries that have been done on the nurses, and they've been honored in a lot of other ways. Sadie Joseph Roberts, who had the Odell S. Williams Museum, God rest her soul, she had a lot of programs where she recognized the nurses for, like, um, uh, Martin Luther King Day or uh, African American History Month. So they need to smell and get their roses and their flowers while they're here. Well, they and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you came on board with me and we were able to make this a reality. And the Baton Rouge community, I want to thank the Baton Rouge community mm -hmm. for coming out and giving the support so these nurses could see uh, what's going on. Um, I still have further work that I want to do, recognizing the nurses. I know you and I have talked about Mr. LD about some other things, but uh, I'm glad that uh, they were able to have fun. Uh, they didn't want to get out of the limousine. Oh, no, they were, that was big time. They, they didn't want to get time. out of the limousine. And I, <laughs> I told them a story because <clears throat> I did a tribute to Joan on program, and I talked about how we had fun riding in the limousine. Well, my grandmother, we called her mother Betty. Uh, when my sister got married, she had a limousine to come and pick us up from the hotel. So while we were riding to go to Naima and Michael's wedding, I said, Mother Betty, what you riding in? And Mother Betty said, I'm riding in the zine. <laughs> so it was so funny because that's what the nurses started calling riding in the zine. Yeah. So that left them with something that they could remember. But it was fun. They did not 
want to get out of the limousine. In fact, when we got to Gwendolyn's house, Gwendolyn said, oh, no, I'm not ready to go in. So we rolled down to Catherine, and Catherine said, ride me to my house. I want my neighbors to see me. <laughs> I said, Lord, have mercy. That was a wonderful day. It really was. It really was a way. Also, John Ford's mother was a nurse. Ida Henderson. Well, Ida Henderson. Mm -hmm. So we can't ever forget Miss Henderson, who was one of the first. And we had all them great people. And we just thank you, ladies, that y'all gave us the opportunity to share that moment with you all. Right. It was a special, special moment. It was a special moment. And uh, we had a lot of links that um, came out from the hospital taking pictures, Mr. L.D., you had a lot of videography or photography or whatever that was taken. Uh, Miss Geraldine Joseph Grandel, daughter Chantel, and her daughter Linda, they have a lot of footage that uh, they have um, been able to collect. I would hope that one day we might be able to put that in some kind of format well, where well, people that want to look at well, it, they well, could you know, see it. Also, the Baton Rouge General did video the whole event, so they do have it on their website, on Baton Rouge General website but we just have we captured a little bit more special moments we did you know versus the video you know you seeing the whole thing unfold mm -hmm. but pictures tell it you know you can see the pictures and tell the story tell a different story yeah and personal type of you know story that's right that's so right so we, we did we was able to capture a whole lot more and i just i'm telling you it was just a special day a special moment it was i mean because we we interviewed the ladies maybe October, November of 2021, and and they told us that day they wanted to see something happen before they transitioned themselves. Right. And guess what? Around about seven, six, seven, eight months later, uh -huh. no, probably no, about nine, eight, eight, nine months later, it happened. Uh -huh. So it, it's, it's really a, a wonderful, uh, it's just wonderful to even think that, you know, we was able to make that happen. That's right. For these beautiful women. That's right. For Absolutely. Our, for our community leaders and those who have given so much. That's right. So. Absolutely. And I'm, I am just, let me just say, and I don't know if you're at a point of closing, but uh, I was one of the participants for the first Million Women's March that was held back in 92, which was held in Philadelphia. I was with the Louisiana delegation. I flew out to Philadelphia, but we did have a bus that left from the mini dome that went to the Million Women March. I have the original poster here of that particular project. I have the actual original newspaper uh, that came out here in Louisiana to show where we were, the Louisiana delegation. I've had so many awards and, and, and certificates and plaques and things because of my endeavors, of my connection, but I, I, I can only say it comes from my roots of my family and those other people who orchestrated me becoming the woman that I am today. I have awards all on my walls, Celebration of Women. I mean, I am just so grateful. I am just so thankful that God has been well, so good well, to me. You know, you you also I want to say <clears throat> I was part of the Million Man March. Okay, wonderful. You know, so I I was there that wonderful day in Washington D.C. in front of the, uh, not the Capitol. What you call that building again? But what, I was I the was Lincoln Memorial. No, no, in front oh. of the in front of the what we call them, 
the uh, building where they where we where it was hosted. It was a beautiful day. Uh huh. It was a beautiful day. Although they say they only had a couple of hundred thousand people out there, but we know it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you could, it was a sea of people out it there. It was a sea of people out and, there, uh, yeah. And, and, and no no disturbance, no problem. We all enjoyed it. It was hot now. It was smoking hot. Yeah. And my friend and I, a guy by the name of Demetri William, we got there early. Uh-huh. And we drove out, because he was living in D.C. at the time, him and his wife, Robin. And uh, so we drove uh, to the Capitol and got there early. Kind of just walked around, and mm -hmm. before we know it, when we looked around, it was a mass crowd. You couldn't even move. I know. You were stuck. I know. And we was all—I was all the way to the front to the stairs mm -hmm. because we had got there early. We was kind of standing on top of the stairs. But there was a couple of young ladies that we got to know. We didn't know who they were at first, and they got there early. So we was all just joking and clowning and talking. And what you, what we realized—that move your hand. I'm sorry. Well, what we realized that, hold on, now, this thing is getting packed out here. Mm -hmm. You know, we couldn't figure out what was interesting though. The day before, I was already in D.C. When I arrived in D.C., we didn't see that many people. It wasn't that many people at the airport. It was nothing. Mm. All of a sudden, the day of that event, hmm. buses pulling up in town, right. airports are filled. Nobody could figure out how that happened. Mm -hmm. Like, where are all these people coming from all of a sudden? All of a sudden. I know. The hotels didn't get filled up the day before. You know, it wasn't like a football game where everybody in the hotel. And, mm -hmm. So you can kind of count the people that's there. Sure. Because you know that these people all are moving around. That night before, ain't nobody was really moving around. I know. I so imagine. the next day, these people, people just showed up. They already was on their way. Some, some driving there. from down, from all the way from, I think some bus came out of California, mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. all over the country. All over the country. Same thing with the Million yeah. Women's March. They bust in. Uh, our bus left, like I said, from the Mini Dome at Southern University, and uh, I flew out that Friday and had a big reception at some museum in Philadelphia, and I mean the people out there. They even had a quilt that they made for the Million Women March. So all of the states that were represented were uh, made as part of the quilt that came from the march. Yeah. And they, they, we were packed. I that mean, area was packed. It was, it was just a beautiful. I want you, you was talking just, just now, and I want to kind of in this conversation because we need to, as a people getting to move forward. I mean, we're we moving forward. I believe, I mean, my mother, thank God she's still here. I got five sisters. Praise God. But I know the women are one of the strongest forces in our community. And the reason why we, as we know, because of every one of us, the woman we call come through the woman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are the man, but she's the woman. Yes, you know, indeed. The womb, you know. That's right. And, but it's time, I'm going to say that's count time. They say it's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. But we got to learn to stand together. I got friends working same companies, oh, with the state, with the city, parish, oh, different organizations, leadership. And the leadership is coming from us. Mm -hmm. So we finally get into leadership, finally get into a place 
that we have some input insights of control. So as a female, as the woman that you are, what do we have to do? We know we know who the enemy is, it's the, it's the devil, but, but, Don, but we got to tear down a devil in each one of us. Uh-huh. Uh, subdue that devil in each one of us, where we can come together, stand together, and move forward together to raise up our people, our community, our children. What can we do? How can we do this, uh, Miss McDonough? Because I know you are about supporting you about your community, you about the what they call women, woman, uh, girl power, women power. How do you see this? How do you access this? How can we move forward? Do you understand where I'm going with this? Yeah. Uh, well, see, I come from the old school, and I know, like I said earlier, because of my family ties, the structure and the foundation that my mom, my grandmothers, my aunts, my teachers, my church members stood in the forefront, stood tall, might have been small in stature like Joan Henderson Forbes, but was powerful by the mouthpiece, a giant in their own way. Um, me having one son and I was a single parent and raised my son in the 1970s, 1980s rather, on up until he matriculated from high school to Holy Cross College to Executive Masters of Business Administration. It wasn't easy for me being a mother, but I had a mother that spoke to us on a daily basis about having morals and values in life, having a foundation. Uh, I think the uh, generation today, they need to know where they came from how they got what they have and how they're doing the things that they're doing because the fight wasn't easy. I came up through the days being a 1953 babe, knowing that I could not go to some places in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or other places. I couldn't go to City Park. I couldn't go to Pontchartrain Beach. I had to go to Lincoln Beach. I had to go to Clark Park because the color of my skin. But that did not stop me from knowing right from wrong and always conducting myself and carrying myself as a young lady. But mommy, every day, mommy said two words to us, morals and values. If some of these folks, even adults, don't get back to the morals and the values in society, then they lose sight. You know, uh, we have children out here that can't read and write. They don't, even, they don't even know their address. They don't even know their telephone number. They may know their nickname, but they don't know their name. So as I always say, it starts at home. That's where the ground root comes. It starts in the home. And what you give in your home to your children, that moves them on to higher heights. When they become men and women, they become a parent. They know how to conduct themselves accordingly. But the main word that I would like to use is my coming up through segregation. It was a learning lesson for me. Then when we transitioned into integration, it was a whole new world out there that we were involved with or we became a part of. So we had to become indoctrinated on knowing how we had to conduct ourselves in any given situation. But I just say on this note, 
the one thing that I can say, and I tell it on today and on, you call my home phone right now, my word for the month of December is connection. You know, you got to have a connection, first of all, with God. You got to have a connection with yourself. You got to have a connection with people. You have to have a connection with others. And I don't have no more way of spending a Ben Franklin than any other culture in today's society. Same way you spend your Ben Franklin, I spend my Ben Franklin. So what I've got to say on that note is, what good is it doing for us to fight against each other? We already got enough battles. We don't have to go to Ukraine. We ain't got to go nowhere else and fight no war. We got a war right here in Baton Rouge. But we also got to learn how to get along and we have to learn how to have a connection. We have to learn how to teach these little girls. I do charm and etiquette in this community. I go in and teach the little boys that when a young girl is old walking in the door, you open the door for her. When you walk in a building, you don't keep your cap on your head. You take your cap off your head. You know, when you're going into a restaurant, you pull the chair out. When you go into a restaurant, you know what is the salad fork, what is the dinner fork, what is this, what is that. When, in, For instance, when you're eating a, a bowl of soup, you don't scoop up to your mouth. The proper etiquette way is to go up and out. These are the kind of things that I was taught because of the matrons, the junior matrons, and home training and family gathering. So I would just say, um, I know it's a new day. People are so passive, but I am the age that I am, and I'm from the old school, and I think I always will be, and I think that that's something that these parents who are of a much younger generation they need to have some construction in their life. They need to plan family time together, sit down, have a meal together, have family talks, go to church, put your children in church, go to church, let them sit down and learn God's way and not sitting in front of the TV all day looking at all that stuff that's on TV. I don't have no problem with that, but I, as a mother, I had rules and I had discipline in my home. A lot of these things that's going on, all this shooting, robbing, killing, and stealing brothers against fathers and fathers against uncles and sisters against mothers, we didn't have to worry about that when we were coming up. So again, I can only say we need to go and get back to the old school. And then when I do my teaching, my training, and my practices, those are the kind of things that I try to emphasize so that these girls and boys will know how to conduct themselves accordingly. But have a connection. But when we're teaching our, our youth, mm -hmm. and you know, you have to first be able to practice what you preach. Correct. It's, it's a lot more just that when the other stuff exists, the other negative or the other uh, components that really affects the community in a negative way, it kind of takes a big, it, it, it takes a bigger stage. It's more, you know, you can see that. Right. And what I see so many I, I'm going to go back. I had a program a few years back. 
in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, behind the uh, behind Cartana Mall. And the program would start out with all young men. Mm -hmm. And one day, because we wanted to have an impact on the young men, and unfortunately, like you just said, a lot of young men was not going to school, dropping out of school at young ages. And that just didn't make any sense. At this day and time, you don't know how to, you can't read or write. Right. When education is free. Right. So that I felt the liability, responsibility to uh, to be a to be a part of a of a change, of making a difference. But once the program got started, we had all these young men men coming in. One day, uh, some young ladies, one of the few of the guys' sisters, asked, "Well, well, we can't we come? We want to be a part of it." We said, "Oh Lord, I don't know if I want any women, any young ladies involved. I don't want no more. I don't want any drama." Yes, indeed. And I didn't want to get caught up in none of that kind of stuff. But you know, the, the young ladies came back. They made a, a heck of a, a push and case to get to, to be involved, and we did. Mm -hmm. We involved them, and that was the best thing could have happened. That's good. Because when, when we got it going, they all worked well together. There was no fighting, no foolishness. Besides basic youth, young people stuff, there was no nothing seriously ever happened or, or happened to anyone. But when, I, when, it, when we did make that happen, and one of, one of my reasoning for making it happen was this year. I saw that when I thought about, okay, should I let these young ladies come? Would that have take their eyes off what we're teaching them, the young men? Would that create any is other issues here? And as one day I was, as I was thinking that through, I said, well, girls got the power. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, women has the power. Unfortunately, most of them don't know they have the power, or the ones who do know don't. A lot of times, don't use it for the benefit of helping. Mm -hmm. They use it for the benefit of self. And what I mean, women had the power. I, I realized then that a young a young woman can make a make a make a make a boy, a young man, pull up his pants, make him. Straighten his back up, mm -hmm. change his walk by just simply saying, "Boy, I ain't gonna talk to you with your pants hanging down." Or, "Boy, I ain't gonna talk to you right. if you don't if you do this, that, and other." Because mm -hmm. all the boys only do what they do to impress the girls. Sure, I played football on all levels, mm -hmm. and one of my thing was when I came from out of practice or I came from out after game. I came from off the field. I came from out of the stadium. I was looking to see how see what, what women was gonna be out there. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I didn't care to see no men. I know that's right. I, <laughs> I know mean, that's right. I mean, I'm not looking for no men. No, no. I mean, I didn't want to impress no men. No. I wanted to impress the women, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what most young men want to do. Sure, absolutely. So I, I so I realized that when thinking about what I experienced or what I went through, mm -hmm. that young women can really really change the rule and can change the world absolutely absolutely and you know even as i think about it coming up through my elementary school years or middle school high school <clears throat> schools are just so different now that uh you know we would have choir 
uh, choir, concerts, band concerts. We had May night. We had a lot of different programs that were held not just during the school time, but after school where families, mothers and daddies could be off from work. They could come and they could see uh, uh, little Johnny uh, read a poem or uh, see a theatrical production or play. You know, these children are not cultivated. They are not enriched. They're not even being captivated by cultural things that when they get off from school, they're outside playing, which is okay. But I remember when I was coming up, if you didn't go to church, you didn't go outside and play. You had to be inside. Um, if there were certain things that were going on in the community, like you were saying, that project that you and whomever else implemented or you did it, those were the kind of things that we came up during that time and day. These children, they don't have that, they don't, they're not involved. So what they say, out of mind is a devil's workshop. Mm -hmm. What, as I worked and retired in juvenile services as a probation officer, the most time of you see things happening on the negative side is um, in the midday or late day or at night. How many times do you wake up in the morning and when you look at the news, it's nothing but the negative. My philosophy is accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. But then because we're living in a different day and time with different men and women who are not equipped or the know-how to get little Becky, uh, little Naima in a little charm class or put her in a little play or put her in ballet or put her in gymnastics or or like my son started soccer at the age of six. He's 44 years old. He's still playing soccer. His son is playing soccer. Those things a lot of these children are not getting because they have parents or a parent. Then you have grandparents that are raising their grandchildren. You got great aunts that are raising the grandchildren. And then, I mean, hey, like I said, I was a single parent. Thank God I had my husband's family. I had my family help me raise my child, but I gave my time to my child during those years because it was my responsibility. My mama would always say, mommy would always say, I can help you raise Bryant, but I'm not going to be the sole responsible person. So in other words, she was letting me know you was, you, you, you that is what you are here for. You are his mother. You know, she always used to say, don't give him nothing that he can come back and smear your face with it. So I was very, very meticulous how I carried myself, how I conducted myself. But even working in the capacity of a probation officer, the way the mamas used to come up there dressed, I'm like, oh, no, she's not dressed like that. You know, all this out, all that out. No. What kind of example are you making for little Johnny? What kind of example are you making for little Tommy? So, uh, again, I say the structure, the foundation is very preponderant, is very important, is very significant. And if these children don't get it, then what are they going to pass on to their children? And how many 
of us are already in the penal institutions. Too many of us are in the penal institutions. Too many of these children nowadays have grown up and they don't have a father directly in the home. I praise God and thank the Lord that I had my granddaddies, I had my daddy, I had my uncles, my puppies, whatever, to help raise me. So um, I would only say that uh, if there's an idea that one conceives that they want to go out and give back. I think now it's the time to do. Well, on that note, we've been here for a little while. <laughs> it's been fun. It's always fun when I'm with Maida. Yeah, Maida. <laughs> it's always fun when I'm here with Sister Maida. Yes, indeed. You know, I always enjoy you. You see, you got so much insight, so much wisdom, and care and concern for you your fellow man and you just want to do the right thing i just want to do the right thing i just and, want and to you, and you're gonna do it the right way i'm gonna do it the right way praise god as long as to god be the glory for me to do the things that i'm doing or walk by faith and not by sight i got people to this day tommy john told me to give you a call miss Mater. can you help me well, yes, ma'am, I can. I may not know how to help, but I'll I'll give them an answer before uh -huh. it's over with. Oh yeah, you definitely will. Definitely will. Definitely so, will. So I mean, and I just I mean I just feel honored to have to have gotten to know you, and uh, that we have developed a bond and a trust. Amen. For one Same another thing here. and a love for one another. That's right. If I know if I want to get something done. I go to Maida. Go to Maida. <laughs> now, if you want something done, you, you call. You, you, how do you get in touch with you, Okay, man? I was going to ask you if I could give out my information. I'm Maida McDonald. Uh, my email address is M-A-D-A-Y-M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D at gmail.com. You can call me. Uh, I don't mind giving out my cell number, 225-936. Five nine two two. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. But you can reach me, and I'll do whatever I can do to help. And in, in what kind of business you have again? I have M and M Public Relations business. So what, I do what, community what do they... projects. I do projects for different organizations in the community. Uh, whatever it is that uh, one needs to have done. Uh, by way of uh, the media, contact, TV, radio, etc. Uh, I'm known all over the United States of America. I have state, local, and national contacts. Uh, you, got, you got it all. I got it all. She, she but I couldn't her. do it all by myself, and I thank my Heavenly Father for allowing me to have the hindsight and the insight and the know-how. And I'm, 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 I'm learning, and I'm, I'm still learning. I'm learning every day every day so what i'm going to say on that note if you say the name Maida, one thing that i want you to remember me by and that is i'm an activator i'm an innovator and i am a motivator so keep that in mind oh love activator innovator and motivator yes love all this all this and all that is Maida. all that is Maida. <laughs> That sums it up. I told you, she, she made her do it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but I thank it. my family. I thank my family. I wouldn't be who I am today if it was not for my family. Well, all the family I praise thank God. You. And I think my testimony here today about my roots and how I was ground rooted, I think that says a lot. Now, anything you want to think, you can think of? I mean, I, 
Ain't no way we can cover it all now. You yeah. always know that, right? <laughs> I think we covered we, it. I we think we covered it. No way we can cover it all. We can cover all of it, but we can we can get the 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 the, the most important pieces yeah. of life that that you know that you have uh, traveled. Yeah. So you know, and that's what I want to capture from you. Yes. Because you know, but her story is so much greater than this. I just. I mean, we, a podcast only should be no more. We I, we attempt to keep it at two hours. We already I think we're going in about three oh, hours yeah. now. But that's all right. We got to keep we got to stick for it at two hours. Yeah, right? I understand. But well, thank so you much. so much. But I thank you for being here, my friend, and thank you for everything. Much love, and I truly appreciate you. Thanks for being part of Count Time. Thank you very much, and happy holidays to everybody. Have yeah. a blessed holiday season. All right. Now, what time is it? Count time. All right. <laughs> Wait, what time is it? It's count time. <laughs> Thank you for joining Count Time once again. And have a great day. And happy holidays to all. We like to say, I was going to give a little more, little more history on Christmas. Should I do that now? Yeah, I mean, hey, today is Tuesday. We got what? Three days to go, four days. But but, but my history story ain't what most people want to hear. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Let let me see. Let me see. Should I do this? I don't have all the information to do it, but I can do it. No, we're going to just close. We'd like to wish everybody a happy holiday. Uh, We thank you all for tuning in to Count Time in 2022 Mm. and giving us much support, showing us much love. And uh, we thank our many subscribers. We thank uh, the awards we got for that we held in now in 25. It's probably 50 now, I guess. But I got to ask my my, uh, my partner in crime, brother James. I like to say thanks my thanks to my my friend and partner James Beckner, who has really done a great job at putting the podcast together because it takes a lot of work, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time to do what he does and. And it's really important, and he has a, a great feel for what you all like to hear and uh, and how to put it together. Because as we do an interview, it don't always come out the way it sounds. Now he just has, <laughs> he has a way of making it sound great, and we thank him for that, my brother. And, and we're gonna say happy holidays to you and your family, and having happy holidays to all out there. And now we're gonna move into 2023, and how to say. It's going to be a year where we're all going to be set free. Mm. And by through count time, we're going to make that be. Because we're going to continue bringing in shows that's going to educate, innovate, motivate. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Keep it on. Keep it on. Keep it on. You, you're on that, the road now, that, my brother. That's going to inform you about the past, present, and the future. Because we want to awaken those who have been civilly dead and those who have been dead. Who, how did Jesus say that? Those who have their eyes wide open but yet still asleep. Hmm. So we, we know it's time that we all, that we awaken those because we need everyone. Hmm. We need your support. We need you out in front. We need to stand up together to make a difference in the community that we are in. Our young people, evidently they're hurting. They're at a place where they don't know what to do. Huh. Anytime they are there killing, shooting, 
man and harming each other. No right. justifiable reason. <laughs> I mean, what get us to a place like this? So we need everyone to come together. Uh, we probably need to call a, uh, what, what you call that again? We need to call a, a call of action. Yes. To bring bring people together, to bring others, bring the whole community together, where we can bring some resolve in our community to help our children, to help our elders, because there are so many who hurt and the food costs is high, gas is high, but money is low. So people are hurting in a lot of different ways. We got to figure out how we can help fulfill a need and not the greed that have to continually to pull and suck the life out of communities all over this country because you got those people so greedy they want to make they want to make the billions of dollars now they're going to trillions of dollars while many are left starving and hungry so we want to help and reach out to those in 2023 and we want y'all to join us again join us back in early 2023 for a lot of great lot a lot more great shows a lot of great more content a lot of great more information that going to keep you informed and keep you aware of what's going on in your community. And we're going to say happy, happy holidays. I'm Brother L. Diazobra, and I'd like to welcome you to the 2023 New Year's. Have a great day. Man can shackle the hand. Man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.